Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Scoopy Radio on your airwaves, on the airplane, on the train, in your house where you hear drilling while people are trying to get to work. Everywhere you want to be, I am Brandon Scoopy Robinson. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Scoopy, Instagram Scoop underscore B, Snapchat Scoop underscore B. Make sure to subscribe to the Scoopy Radio podcast via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn app, Stitcher app, or simply visit ScoopBradio.com. And basketball season is just about here. And to kickstart it right away, quick, fast, in a hurry, is a guy that kind of knows basketball. I mean, he's been a trainer for 32 years, none other than Mr. Gary Vitti, former trainer to the Los Angeles Lakers. Team doctor, trainer, team doctor, what are we going with? Uh, head athletic trainer. Even better. What's going on, sir? I'm going good. I'm retired now. They're getting ready for camp, um, and I'm happy for them, but I'm also happy that I'm not going. So uh, I love being retired. I'm, I'm doing some writing. I'm doing some keynote speaking. I'm doing some consulting. I'm, I'm probably even busier than I want to be, but the big key is um, no stress. Hmm. You mentioned something. You said um, that you're writing. Is there a forthcoming book that's coming out? What are you doing? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm on about chapter five right now, and um, when I get six chapters in, then then we'll uh, we'll see if we can cut a deal with a with a publisher. But it's um, it's called Thirty Two Years of Titles and Tears from the Best Seat in the House. That's uh, that's that's a lot of depth there. Number one, you have been you've been a trainer since with the Lakers. I look at it like this: I'm 33. You've been a trainer with the Lakers since I was pretty much one years old. Um, the Lakers have been part of my family's life for years. And the one thing that I that I look at uh, when I look at the Lakers dynasty is um, just basically how you've been around from Magic to Kobe and. Yeah. I'm curious to know, when you look back at that history, does it feel like 32 years? Um, going through it, 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 
it felt like there was a hundred years. Okay, but now um, as it you know, I look behind me, it went by awfully, awfully fast, and and probably um, the last fifteen years really flew by. So the the first fifteen sort of dragged along a little bit, and the last fifteen was like a blur. Scoopy Ray on the line with Gary Vitti. It felt like a blur. Magic Johnson, uh, many have said in 79, uh, was responsible for, uh, as well as Larry Bird, uh, for rescuing the league. Um, when you look at um, the Lakers, um, before you were a trainer, what, what, what were, you, were you actually a basketball fan, first and foremost? Yeah, I mean, before I came to the Lakers, um, I, I worked Division One college. Uh, Football, baseball, basketball. Um, I actually worked for the Utah Jazz for a couple of years as an assistant. So um, I started in athletic training as a football football athletic trainer, and uh, also covered uh, Division One baseball. And then, and I went to the University of Utah to graduate school. And it just happened that in 1979, which was the year that I arrived. There, that's the same year that the New Orleans Jazz moved their franchise to Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, they were looking for um, a part-time assistant athletic trainer. So they called the U, and the U sent me down there. Um, and, and so I spent two years uh, working pro basketball before I ever worked college basketball because I was a, a college football trainer. Mm-hmm. And, so then I left, I finished school, and um, I left, I went up to the University of Portland, and I don't know if you remember Jose Slaughter and Darwin Cook, but mm-hmm. these guys, uh, they were really good, and they had just put University of Portland on the map, and they were building a new facility in Port- Portland, and they wanted to get a new athletic trainer and start a curriculum and build a human performance lab and a weight room and all, training room and all this stuff, and so... My name had been floating around. I was a doctoral student at that point. And so they offered me the job. I went up there for a couple of years, and um, they had a big-time Division One basketball program uh, and soccer program. You know, other sports, too, but those were the two main ones. And then from there, the Lakers called me in, well, it was August of 1984, I interviewed at the forum with Jerry West. Jerry West actually picked me up at the airport, if you can wow. do that, in a navy blue Mercedes with tan interior. I remember like it was yesterday. He drove me to the forum, and it happened to be that the U.S. was playing Spain for the gold medal in the 84 Olympics in the forum. Mm-hmm. And so the the place was electric. Um, I interviewed for, I don't know, three or four hours with those guys and um, went back to the airport and flew home and, and hoped that they'd offer me the job. And a few days later, they did. And I came to L.A. and I've been here ever since. When you're going through an athletic training or just in general, medical or assistant coaching, I mean, how intensive are the uh, questions that are being asked of you? Like, if you could give me some sample questions, I'm curious. Well, boy, I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, but for the most part, you know, Jerry and I, we well, I interviewed with Pat first and then with Jerry. And Jerry and I was more like a 
a business discussion, you know, money, you know, years of contract, you know, who, who you're loyal to, what's the flow chart. Uh, but with Pat, it was all about philosophy. Um, hmm. He was a very, very progressive coach, um, especially at the time. And, um, you know, my feeling was that the NBA as a whole and, and the Lakers, including the Lakers, were sort of behind the curve in terms of what was going on in sports medicine. Now, you got to kind of understand that, you know, there's been athletic trainers around since the gladiators, but, you know, the, the real oh, science of sports medicine is probably only about 40 or 50 years old where people uh-huh. were actually graduating with education specific to sports medicine. And probably most of the evidence-based stuff has come out in the last 20 years. Right. There's real science behind it. And so I was one of those guys. I, I was, you know, would have been one of the first PhDs in athletic training, um, you know, back in the early 80s. And so, you know, the way this stuff kind of works is the science comes from the university settings because that's where, you know, that's what a PhD degree is. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a research degree. And so those guys that are are PhDs at the university level are creating evidence-based practices, and then that information filters up into the pros and down into, you know, high schools and, and um, you know, weekend warriors. And so I was coming off of, off of that position, you know, being at the college level at the height of, of the cutting-edge stuff in sports medicine. And so that's how Riley found me. And um, we hit it off really, really well. I mean, he's a really intense guy, um, and I can handle that very well, you know, because I'm that way. And so, so we we did quite well together. I I, I love Riley. A lot of people had a hard time with him, but you know, I I didn't. You said something that really stood out to me, uh, Scoopy Radio, on the line with Gary Vitti. Lakers royalty. You, my baby sister, she just turned 22. And when I tried to explain to her uh, the NBA in the 90s in particular, I, I fell in love with the game in 91 uh, when the Lakers played the Bulls in the finals that season. But when I talked to my sister, I, I explained to her that Phil Jackson uh, in the 90s is is kind of what Greg Popovich is to her age group now, just as far as the, the premier coach or someone that you know people find interesting, etc. When you said when you were talking about Pat Riley. Um, you mentioned that he was progressive in his, I guess, his, his approach or his teaching. If you look at today's NBA, who do you think uh, would compare to Pat Riley as far as that cutting edge or that next? Uh, um, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure that it's one that I have a, an answer for. I mean, you know, obviously the Spurs um, are well coached, and, and I think they have a great. Um, you know, athletic training department, uh, their sports medicine people, regardless of, you know, whatever you hear with, with Kawhi. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's not taking anything away from his situation. I, I don't know sure. what the specifics are. I, you know, I've only seen Kawhi Leonard play. I don't know him. And as far as I'm concerned, he's, you know, he's a champion. And mm-hmm. so you got to kind of listen to what he's telling you. At the same time, I know those people in San Antonio, and they're really good at 
at what they do. So I don't know where the breakdown happened there, but I think that's a very solid group. Um, the Phoenix Suns historically have always been cutting edge. Um, you know, they don't have a very good team right now. I don't know how they're going to be this year, but they've been struggling. But from, from my end of the business, um, they're really good. You know, I think most of the teams now in the NBA, the Toronto Raptors are solid because they got Alex McKechnie up there. Alex was one of my assistants for eight years. Um, mm. He's he's a he's a real solid guy. He's originally from Scotland. We got him by way of Vancouver. He was in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, running his own clinic, doing a lot with uh, soccer and hockey up there. We brought him down here. Chicago Bulls are, are good, but I think you know I think sports medicine is in a place now where it, it's all pretty good. And the re- and the reason why is because of the technology that that's out there. So for years, we would look at an athlete with our eyeballs, okay, and um, and try to figure out what was wrong with them and try to correct it before something happened. Um, and then things progressed a little bit, and beyond looking at them with our eyeballs, we had them do some stuff, okay? Right. Um, we had him squat three times, hold the third squat, and see what he had to do to get into that position, did his knees come in, did they go out, did his feet turn in, did his feet turn out, did he have to lean forward, did his arms come forward? And and so we would evaluate um, athletes that way, but still it was subjective in nature, meaning I get you to do something and I look at you and I have a little checklist and, and you know I, I mark stuff down. But if you're looking at the same guy that I am, we might see things differently. And so to some extent, it's... it's um, it's still an objective evaluation. Today, we have high-speed cameras. Uh, we have high-speed wireless sensors that not only tell you did his knee turn in, but it'll tell you absolutely accurately how many degrees did it turn in. Hmm. And so <clears throat> with the technology, if, if you're trained enough to, to know what to do with it, um, then you know you're 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 way ahead of the curve, and and I think you know the NBA has has gotten there in in terms of technology. Um, I'm not sure what you know about that, but I'm happy to inform you if you're so interested in in uh, in how some of these things are determined. I am. Tell me more. <laughs> okay, so let's start with the arena. Okay, so in in every arena in the NBA, there are six cameras. And the cameras shoot 25 frames per second, and they recognize all 13 people on the court, five players on each side and three officials. And they do this without any wearable. Um, they recognize the individuals by their numbers. And so from these cameras, there's a wealth of analytic basketball information that's acquired that the basketball people use, meaning... Uh-huh. You know, uh, Brandon shoots better when he takes two steps to his left and, and then switches the ball from his left hand to his right hand. I mean, it, it gets that intricate. Different spots on the floor, whether you're moving left or right, and who you're guarding and who's guarding you and, and all that. But 
While they're looking at that, we use the same technology to look at some different things. And one of the things, or several of the things that we look at, is that with the cameras, we can tell how many accelerations or decelerations each player had during the contest. And from that, we can extrapolate the average speed that that individual ran during the course of the game. Uh So now we take the average speed, and we're going to multiply that by their body weight. Then we're going to take that number and multiply it by the distance that they ran, because the camera's giving us that information as well. And we're going to come up with a number that's called load. What was the load on that player for that game? Then we're going to take that number, and we're going to divide it by the minutes that he played. And that gives us a second number we call intensity. Mm-hmm. And so in theory, what we're looking at is we want to see a, a direct linear relationship between load and intensity. As load's going up, we want to see intensity to go up with it. If it's not, and then the, what I did was I created the stoplight, red, yellow, green, right? So if that's happening, then I slot that player in a green zone, and we can go ahead and push that, that player in games and practice and training. Mm-hmm. But if this intensity is beginning to flatten and he drops into the yellow zone, now we got to figure out why. Now, it simply could be he's guarding Stefan Curry, okay, and his intensity is going to go down because Seth is wearing him out. Or maybe he didn't sleep well the night before. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he's hurt. Maybe he got in a fight with his girlfriend. We don't know. And so we start looking at other things. So let's just say that if we were going to define load, let's say it's a combination of physical stressors and and non-physical stressors, okay? And so the first thing we want to look at is the external load, meaning the stimulus that was put physically upon that individual. That could be what we just talked about, okay, Um, measured in the game that way, or if he's in the weight room, how much weight did he lift that day? Any anything that we that's an external stimulus on his physical body. Okay. And today we have lots of ways to measure that stuff. We have GPS, right. we have accelerometers, gyroscopes, chronometers, dynamometers, cameras. We have everything that's objective. It's not just us trying to guess at what happened. Now there's something else that we call an internal load. And those are the physiological and psychological responses to the external load. You with me? I am. Okay. So now we we figure this stuff out. And the way we figure out um, the internal load is with what we call an RPE. And it's a ratings of perceived exertion. And so it's it's simply a questionnaire that you ask the player how they feel. You, you would do this every day, mm-hmm. and zero would be rest, and 10 would be maximum difficulty. How was your workout today on a scale of 1 to 10? So now you have another variable. And so what we can do is we can take that number from the RPE, and we can multiply that by the duration of the workout. And that gives us the load for that session. But maybe you're going through two a days. So now 
it would be how many sessions of that load in 24 hours, and that would give us the daily load. Then we take the daily load over seven days, and that gives us what we call the weekly load. And then we create a number that we call monotony, which would be one standard deviation of the weekly load. And we go back to that weekly load and we multiply it by monotony and we come up with our final number that's called strain. What is the strain on that particular individual? And what we're trying to do is we're trying to monitor their optimal workload. And the way to do that is to create what we call an acute to chronic workload ratio. And so the, the, the acute workload would be the cumulative load for seven days. Right. The chronic workload would be the cumulative load for 28 days. And then we compare the seven-day load to the 28-day load. Mm-hmm. The higher the higher the acute workload compared to the chronic workload, the greater chance that that individual is going to get injured. Huh. And we know from some of the research that's been done, we can go back to strain, right, which is the weekly load times monotony, that we can go back and to 89% accuracy of all illnesses and injuries were correlated to a spike in strain within 10 days prior to the incident. Wow. So this, this, yeah, so this stuff has become very, very scientific. And so as load increases equal to greater than 15% from the preceding week, then you your injury risk goes up by 50%. And so it's, it's the constant monitoring of the load and having the, the, the right equation to put it in. Now, one last point. Mm-hmm. What I first told you about when I was there, we were, we were taking the speed times the distance times your body weight. Well, before I left, we ran the permutations of all three of those variables. And what we really found was to 94% accuracy, we could predict load by the distance that they ran, which is, which is very interesting because let's just say you're a runner. Let's just say you're a jogger. How do you measure your load? You go for a run. You know how far you ran, and you know how long it took you, and that's your load. And then you can make increases to the time and distance that you ran based on the load, not not increasing more than 10 to 15 percent in any week. Okay? That's how you will prevent getting hurt, tendonitis, stress fractures, strains, things like that. And so <clears throat> all this stuff um, has become very scientific. Now, in the games, in the NBA, at this point, you're not allowed to use wearables. So everything has to be done by camera. But in training and practice, you can use wireless sensors. Now, you don't have to put a sensor on every guy on the team. You can, okay? but probably, you know, what you should do is you take a big guy and a little guy every day. 
Yeah, because most of the big guys are doing about the same workload, and most of the little guys are doing the same workload. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and you know, you, you choose a different guy every day because the, the guys, the players, they don't want, they don't want, you know, these sensors on them. I mean, they feel like lab rats, and and you know, so you switch it up. And in theory, with a fifteen man roster, with the game schedule. Um, little as we practice today, probably a guy's going to wear a sensor every 10, 12 days or something like that. So it's not that bad. But eventually, really what's going to happen, I believe anyway, is that every pair of shoes, even your dress shoes, mm-hmm. someday are going to have a sensor. <clears throat> and the algorithms are going to you know, be based on the sensors and the cameras that are used now. Because the reason why we don't have this yet is we actually do have smart shoes where there, there's um, sensors in the shoe. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that if you're running straight ahead, you could probably get very accurate information. So right. the two things that the body doesn't like is slowing down and turning. So if you could run as fast as you could and circumnavigate the globe, right? There was a road that went all the way around the world, and, and you never got tired. You ran as fast as you could. You would never get hurt. It's right. when you try to slow down. We call that an eccentric load. When you eccentrically load, that's when things start going wrong in the kinetic chain. And if you're trying to turn, meaning you're putting torque, you're twisting on joints, if you if you look at our body, there's some joints that we want mobile, and there's other joints that we want stable. Now we don't want any joint to be too mobile because then you know you dislocate and and you know the load gets shifted in all the wrong places. But sort of think of it this way: you have 26 bones in your feet, and each time two of those bones come together, you form a joint. And so. You want some mobility in your foot so that you can absorb the shock of all of your body weight coming down on your foot. And if you look at your foot, your big toe is bigger and thicker than your second toe, than your third, all the way down to your little right. toe. And, and the bones in front of those toes, the metatarsals, are the same way. Well, there's a reason why your foot's formed that way because we want you to bear your weight more off the inside of your foot where the bones are bigger. The right. guys that the guys that bear their weight on the outside of the foot, they're the ones that break that fifth metatarsal, which they call a Jones fracture, and you end up putting a like Lopez is the kid that's had three of them already, right? But I think they finally they got it straight. I think for one thing, big guys like that, sometimes they can't find screws long enough. You know, hmm. they make them they make them for the population. You know, how many seven-footers, you know, how many screws, you can't make any money on that. It's not like you're down to Home Depot and, and, you know, these are surgical screws. So I I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent. No, you're not. I'm learning something. Okay, you're with me. So, okay, so so what we want is we want that foot to be mobile, but not too mobile, but mobile. But the knee, we don't want that mobile. We want that really stable. But we want more motion in your hip. But we don't want it in your spine, okay? Mm-hmm. We don't want, you know, your spinal cord's in there. I mean, we don't want those bones shifting around, okay? And your shoulder, we want more more motion, right? And the way God created us is like every other joint, 
okay, need to be mobile or stable, okay? And so <clears throat> um, what we can do with this wireless sensor technology is figure out all these mechanics. Now, the thing with the shoe, if you're changing directions, you're slowing down and you're turning and you're changing directions, now there's going to be a lot of friction in the shoe. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and to be honest with you, the sensors are more sensitive than what we need them to be. Sure. So, so the science is really not in the sensor. The science is in the guy that creates the algorithm with the information that the sensor is giving him. And so, what needs to happen is is that that algorithm guy. He needs to weed out or mine out that noise mm-hmm. okay, that that isn't important. Okay, and so in statistics, there's sort of two things um, that they look at. There's, you know, years ago they used to use what they call multiple regression. So if I said, Brandon, I want you to tell me something about something, but I don't give you any information about it, and you're trying to predict, you know, an outcome. Um, basically, you're just guessing because you don't know right. anything about it. But if I gave you one piece of information, now you can probably make a little bit better guess. And if I give you two pieces of information, then even better. And if I give you three, even better, until you reach a point that no matter how much more information I've given you, you cannot more accurately predict what you're trying to predict. And so at that point... That's what we call the point of diminishing returns in, in statistics. And so now you've gotten all, all the variables that you need to make your prediction. So there is statistically that maneuver still exists, but we right. also have something now that's called cluster analysis. And so what they're looking for is clusters of correlation, things that look like they go together. Okay. And then, and then it's after that, it's all artificial intelligence. And so, you know, the computer figures it out. Okay. The computer is going to figure all this out. And so that's where they are with the sensor in the shoe. They're still trying to figure it out, but they're going to get it figured out. And, and it's not going to be too far in the future. And as you know, generally with technology, things start, they're kind of expensive. But then they get smaller, faster, and cheaper. And so someday, Brandon's going to have a sensor in his shoe. When he buys a shoe, it's already in there. You're going to have an app on your phone or your tablet. The sensor is going to store all the information. Okay? And then it's going to Bluetooth it wirelessly to your tablet or your cell phone. It's going to tell you everything that you want to know physiologically about you okay on, on that particular day and and you know there'll there'll be an equation in there that'll give an acute to chronic workload ratio and it's going to tell you brandon you can you can push yourself a little bit more today mm-hmm. or the opposite or the opposite it's going to say hey listen man you, you know you you're, you're on a road to injury you better back off and and get some more sleep and get off your feet and get some rest and and that sort of thing and so that that's where this whole thing is going. Um, no, that's, that's valid. And, and, and I guess I want to ask this question. With that change in technology, do you think that that's why that has made 
coaches, assistant coaches, trainers um, allow players to get more rest? What's changed now than back when you started? Yeah, I, well, I think the rest thing started with Popovich, okay? And, and his equation was pretty simple, um, that these 82, these eight preseason games and the 82 regular season games that we play, the 90 games, other than, other than uh, revenue, okay, to pay everybody, okay, so the owner can make money and pay everybody, they're basically meaningless. Okay? The only thing that really counts is, is the playoffs. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you're, if you're tired, you're not going to play as well and you're going to increase your risk of injury. And so Pop figured that out. Now, uh, you know, what he didn't put into the equation is, and, and, and I'm not saying that this is my opinion, I'm just saying that there's people that paid a lot of money to see those, those guys play. And, you know, they don't show up to play and, and they're not injured and they're, they're resting. Mm-hmm. And so there's an ethical question there. And, and, and I'm not saying that it's, you know, not ethical. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's a question. Of course. And, and so in, in my mind, and I bring this up because in my mind, when, when we were in the eighties and, you know, we went 67 and 15 and whatever year, 87, I think it was, you know, I mean, guys played 82 games. And, and so, you know, when you're playing today, it's now, it's now become a different game um, in the sense that you've taken that variable out of the game, the fatigue factor, where that was, that was part of it. That was part uh-huh. of the strategy of the game, okay, that, you know, can you play when you're tired? Can you play when you're hurt? Now you don't have to, you know, if you're tired, you're hurt, don't worry about it, don't play. You know, so it, it changes the dynamic of the game. And then the other, you know, part of the game that's changed drastically is the speed of the game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no, it's not a big man's game anymore. Um, you know, it was a low post game in out. Now, you know, it's it's a point guard dominated game. These guys are, you know, there's a lot of injuries, and and one of the reasons I believe is is because of the speed of the game. They are they are moving at a very very high rate of speed. And let, let's let's you know you don't have to be a physics major or an engineer to figure this out. If you're in your car and you're going five miles an hour, uh, and 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 something jumps out in front of your car. Well, you have a better chance of avoiding hitting it, okay? You know, hitting the brakes or turning, avoid avoid running into it. But if you're going 50 miles an hour, okay, then it becomes a little bit more of a problem, doesn't it? Okay? Yeah. You, you, need, you need more space, you know, to, 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 to stop, to slow down and stop. Well, the, the length of the court is the same, Um the speed, the one thing, everything in the game is the same. The height of the rim, the measurements on the floor, everything's the same. The only thing that's changed is the speed of the game. And the, the guy that I think 
you know, my personal opinion is Russell Westbrook is the guy that impresses me the most with the, the rate of speed that he can move and then stop on a dime. So if, hmm. if there's a defensive guy in front of him and he's got a full head of steam bringing the ball up the floor, he can stop right in front of that guy and go straight up for a jump shot and, and not run him over, not draw an offensive foul. Or he can slow down and pivot and turn left or turn right to go around and cross him over. And even he has suffered injuries, and he's the best at it. Mm-hmm. And so, so once again, you know, these are, are the issues are slowing down and turning. And so going back to going back to what I was saying where we were looking at average speed times body weight times distance and we found that distance was, you know, the ninety-four percent accuracy on on prediction. Maybe the other two variables were not what we should have been looking for. So the hmm. average speed is is accelerations and decelerations. And they combine them. They figure out an average speed, right? Maybe we should cut the accelerations out because you don't get hurt accelerating. Right. And just look at decelerations and changing directions. And now maybe look at distance, decelerations, changing directions, body weight, time on the floor. Okay? These might be, you know, better variables to look at, but I retired, so I don't somebody else's job now. No, that's that's valid. That's valid. We'll be ready on the line with Gary Beanie. You talked about um, just all of the different changes in technology and speed. Um, I remember I was in grad school, uh, and I watched um, Kobe Bryant a lot, um, particularly like from 2011 to 20. Till the end, really. Um, and the thing that was disheartening was he, like Michael, had a perfect career winning-wise and just intensity-wise. But the thing that Michael did not have was that devastating Achilles injury. And I believe that Kobe, had he not had that Achilles injury, definitely would have played longer. Uh, it was game 80 of the Lakers' regular season game, uh, and, and he tore it. He tore his Achilles uh, against uh, the... Utah Jazz, if I'm not... Well, actually, no. Wasn't it against the Golden State Warriors? It was. It was against the Warriors, and that's when Mark Jackson was uh, was coaching. Exactly. Do you think that in cases like Bryant, where he's a superstar, uh, the rules for those type of algorithms differ? Somebody like Kobe, somebody like Michael. How does that differ from somebody who's a role player or somebody who's a star? No, I, th- I think it's I think it's the same. Um, you know what what may be a little bit different for them is the RPE scale. Mm-hmm. You know, because the rate of perception of exertion. I mean, Kobe, um, you know, I, I don't know if he had it within himself to admit that he was exhausted. You mm-hmm. know, so so that that part of it um, is subjective to oneself. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, you can say whatever you want about Kobe Bryant, you like him, you don't like him, you know, you love him. But there's, there's, 
four things that you cannot take away from Kobe Bryant. And let's say one of them is talent. But in my opinion, um, and, and, and this keynote that I do, that's also called 32 Years of Titles and Fears, uh, one of my GB gems, as my daughter calls these things, GB <laughs> gems, um, you know, they're little life's lessons that I taught my kids, and they, they call them GB gems. But one of them is, is that talent is the most overrated thing in life. And so what if I told you that Kobe was talented, but he was not the most talented? There's other players that were more talented than, than Kobe. Uh, why does Kobe have five rings and, and some of these other guys have none? Right? So we're going to give them the, the talent thing. But when you really look at Kobe, there's really nothing that special about him physically in terms of a basketball player. You know, did he have speed? Yeah, but there was other guys that were faster. Did he have good size? You know, was he strong? Yes, he was. There's no doubt about it. But there was other guys that were bigger and stronger and faster. But so why, you know, why him? Why did he, you know, how how did he do more with less? Mm-hmm. So let's give him, let's give him one. We're going to give him the talent thing, but but we're going to qualify it as I just did. Right. Well, the second thing was, is that he worked really hard, but a lot of guys worked hard. It's not enough today, no matter what you do. I don't care what, what you do for a living. This, this could be outside of sports, and this is what I tell my children. Not enough to work hard. A lot of people work hard. If you want to be the best, you not only have to work hard, but you have to work smart, hard mm-hmm. and smart. Use your brain. Number three Kobe was tougher than anybody that I had ever come around. He basically eliminated the words can't and won't out of his lexicon and replaced them with can and will. Hmm. You know, he, he just believed that he could do it, no matter what it was. He believed he, he could do it. Um, and if you want to, I'll finish this, and if you want me to tell you a story, I will about his the way he the way he looks at things. Take your time. Uh, I'm in no rush. So, okay, so tougher tougher than anybody that I've ever been around. Um, you know, and I work football and everything. This guy is he's a different cat. And and then the other thing about Kobe is that um, he he was intellectually brilliant at the game. So he, when we would come in the locker room at halftime and some of his teammates were, you know, checking their cell phones for tweets and emails and text messages, Kobe was in the training room with a laptop um, looking at thing cuts in the first half so he could figure out how to counter it in the second half. You know, mm. he was, he's, he's an intellectually brilliant guy. Um, and so whatever you want to say about the kid, you, you can't take those things away from him. That's, that's him. That's who he is to the core. Now, going back to the tough part, um, he comes flying down the aisle of the airplane 
and says to me, he goes, GB, you, you got to watch this. But watch what? He goes, uh, have you ever heard of Saw? So you know the, the Saw movies? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So I didn't know what they were. So he, <laughs> he hands me this disc, okay, the Saw disc. And one of the scenes is this guy has this thing on his head called the reverse bear trap. And so it's this giant metal thing on a guy's head, and there's these things in his mouth. And you know how, like, you step on a bear trap and the two metal things come together and they, they you know, crimp onto your leg, your foot, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is the opposite. So these things are already together, but if you, you trip, you know, the wire, then those, it's going to open, not close. And when it opens, it's going to rip your jaw off of the rest of your skull. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the, the saw guy, you know, that created the contraption, he drugs this guy. And while the guy's, you know, out, he implants the key to this contraption behind the guy's eyeball. And and so he's got this thing on his head that he can't get off unless he gets the key, and he gives the guy a scalpel, and he's got to cut his own eyeball out to get the key to take the thing off his head. Mm-hmm. So I don't know who thinks up stuff like this, okay? But, but Kobe was absolutely, of, of all the different possible possible things that happen in these Saw movies, he was totally enamored by that scene, and he came back, and he, before I even saw it, he, he said, you need to watch this. He goes, I'm telling you, I could do it. Go do what? He goes, you'll see. He goes, I can do it. And he, he had already convinced himself that if he was ever in this situation, that he would take the momentary pain of cutting his eyeball out to save his his life, and and that's I mean think about that. I, you know, first off, who thinks of stuff like that? And even if you watched it, you wouldn't kind of put yourself in that guy's position for real. Kobe did. He actually, you know, he sort of relived it and said, you know, if it was me, I could do it. He had already convinced himself that that he and he convinced me that he would do it. Right. So that's the kind of guy he is he cut his own eyeball out to get a key to take something off of his head. What do you think? Yeah, that 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 sounds like Kobe. You know, I, I I with some of my friends just having lunchroom conversations in high school and college, we often talked about how Kobe, and and I mean this in all due respect, had a serial killer's mindset in that he was just calculated, calculated in everything. You can tell by yeah. the way he put the shirt in, the way he bloused his shirt, the way he wore his socks, the way he you know tied his sneakers. Just everything was calculated. So. Mm-hmm. You saying that about Kobe doesn't surprise me because <clears throat> that's the type of person he is. I know his dad. I, I spent some time in Dallas um, at this basketball exposure program, and our hotels. We were there for a week. We were brought in, and one of the things that you, you I think he had the advantage of was obviously um, going in, into Italy and spending time with his father when he was overseas. Um, I, I think those tapes. He often talks about watching Isaiah, watching Michael, watching Magic. His dad playing for the Sixers and, you know, seeing that. And then the other advantage I think he had and is, and I think it was ahead of his time, was the notion or the, the, the reality that he was a second-generation ball player, like most many, many NBA players are now. You look at Michael Thompson's uh, son, Clay. You look at 
Steph Curry. You look at all these guys. They studied a lot of tape and they studied the lifestyle and what it was like to be a ball player before they came. They became one. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I think you, they, what's the book Outliers? You said you you be, they, you become an expert. Malcolm Gladwell, when you spend ten thousand hours, and he had more than ten thousand hours. Mm-hmm. I think that's what yeah. makes him special. Yeah, no, I'm I'm I, I think the serial killer is a great analogy. Um, and and I never really thought about the second generation thing, but I I think you're that's uh, that's a very interesting point and a good one. Um, yeah, they come in knowing more, you know, yeah. and, and and what to look for. For sure, Scoopy Radio talking Radio. to Gary Vitti. You talked about Kobe. You talked about his mindset, Magic Johnson. Uh, do you, in your mind, um, just from being on the bench on the other side, when you look at LeBron um, on that Lakers team, uh, does he remind you more of a of a Magic as far as a playmaker personality and facilitator, or does he remind you more of Kobe or Michael? Hmm. I mean, he doesn't remind me of either one. I, I, I think, you know, I think he's an enigma um, in the sense that his, his, his sheer size and strength um, and what he can and his skill level and his, you know, athleticism sets him apart from anyone ever. Um, you know, I, I find him to be more of a bigger version of Oscar Robertson, maybe. Um, the big O. He, he, he's just, and he plays the game the way it's supposed to be played. I mean, he takes criticism for it um, because, you know, people think like Kobe, you're supposed to take over the game and, you know, make the big shot, even if there's three guys on you, you know. But LeBron makes the pass. You know, he draws a defense to him, and he makes the right play. And, and I, for one, uh, applaud that. Some people um, criticize him for it. But I, I, it's hard for me to compare him to anyone. I, I, I don't think there is anyone. And, and um, I guess I made my comparison. He's a bigger version of, of Oscar Robertson. I, if you're young, you see an Oscar play, you should go back and watch tape. But he was, he was a monster. I watched growing up a ton of classic sports, kind of ton of ESPN classic, and I and just from why I wasn't around at that time, but the numbers specifically uh, reflected. I think there was a stat that they used to read all the time that LeBron, like Oscar, like Michael, averaged at least twenty five and five. I think it was for a multitude of seasons, and so the statistics definitely back up those 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 facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Radio. To Gary Vitti, and and um, I was actually talking to some friends yesterday about. Um, Kareem. Uh, when you look at Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, people often discuss, um, you know, the top five of all time. And sometimes, I think at this point in life, in 2018, some may leave out Kareem. And I told, I told a group of people that I feel like he gets, he's beginning to get the Wilt Chamberlain treatment. You know, people see that the scoring record with Kareem, and people see Wilt, and so many people didn't see him play. When you look at Kareem Abdul-Jabbar from a skill standpoint, uh, what was he like sitting on the bench watching him? For you, I believe that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not only the greatest basketball player that ever played the game. I can make an argument that he was the greatest athlete to ever walk the planet. If you if you really look 
at what Kareem accomplished in his career, there is no one, no one that's come even close to the success that, that he's had in terms of championships, whether it be high school, college, uh, pros, MVPs, scoring. He, he, he's, he's beyond, like way beyond anybody else that, that's ever played any sport. And I actually, after uh, Tom Brady, you know, they made a big deal about him saying he was the greatest athlete of all time. And I posted something on Facebook about Kareem and, and said, I, I think Kareem is the greatest athlete of all time. And then I listed, you know, the things that, that he did. And, and, you know, it doesn't take much Just go to Google and you can, you'll see it. Um, you know, he's, he, you know, they still haven't broken his record. And I don't think anybody will because, for one thing, no one will play long enough. Okay? You know, it takes a lot of years to score that many points. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my opinion. In October 1984, uh, the train, at the Lakers training camp at College of the Desert outside Palm Springs, uh, Magic James Worthy and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar ran the three-lane rush, uh, and they covered the court in three passes. The ball never touched the floor. You told Sports Illustrated, Lee Jenkins, he's now at the Los Angeles Clippers, but at the time at Sports Illustrated, you told him they were like deer. It was the first yeah. time in my life I was in awe. Yeah. Why yeah, was deer matter- the first thing that came to buy? Yeah. We, we, you know, I had met a lot of the, of the guys, um, but I met them individually. Okay, so I'd be at the forum and, you know, Michael Cooper would show up one day, you know what I mean? And it was like, hey, here, you know, meet Gary Beatty, right? And, but I hadn't seen them all in the gym at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that, that first practice um, was remarkable to me. The way they flew up and down the floor and fluidly. And, you know, we talked also about the game today being a point guard dominated game. So, you know, we, we played um, fast basketball. It was showtime. And, you know, we actually practiced uh, the fast break. It wasn't just something that, you know, it, was, it just wasn't guys running down the floor. There was, mm-hmm. there was you know. And if you really watch us back then, um, so, you know, Mag, let's say Kareem got the rebound and gave the outlet pass to Magic, and then Kareem and Byron Scott, or I'm sorry, James Worthy and Byron Scott, uh, or Michael Cooper would, would go straight to the sidelines, okay? They almost run out of bounds. And then once they, they hit the hash mark, they would start angling towards the basket from both sides, which allowed Magic, you know, passing angles. Okay, and you know he would make a decision. He was either going to go left, he was going to go right, or mm-hmm. he was going to take the ball to the hoop himself. And and generally, if he was if he was going to pass it left, he was looking right. And if he was going to pass it right, he was looking left. You know, and and you know no look pass. Today's game, those guys go to the sideline, and when they hit that hash mark, they don't start to angle it. They go straight to the corners. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, they'd rather give up a layup, uh, pass up a layup. And, 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 you know, the analytics are telling them 
to pass up the layup and hit the guy in the corner for a three-point shot. Now, once that ball goes up, you don't see many offensive players going to the offensive board anymore because the analytics have also told them that the chances of you getting the offensive rebound are low compared to now you're going to get caught in transition going the other way. So you shoot the ball from the corner, and as soon as you let it go, everybody everybody gets back. So going back to Kareem, I just pulled this up. Um, here's a few things about him. Six-time NBA champ, two-time NBA finals MVP, six-time most valuable player of the league, 19 all-star games, 10 NBA all-first teams, five all-NBA second teams, five NBA all-defensive first teams, six hmm. NBA all-defensive second team. He was the rookie of the year. He's a two-time scoring champ. He was the NBA rebounding champ. He was a four-time NBA block leader. Um, one of the 50, top 50 of all time. Three-time NC2A champ. Three-time NC2A final four most outstanding player. Three-time national collegiate player of the year. Three-time consensus first team All-American. Two-time Mr. Basketball USA. I mean, do you, you know of anybody in any sport that's done anything even close to that? No. And I think what sets him apart is the championship run with the Lakers, um, the Skyhook, UCLA, uh, and Milwaukee. Um, and I think, um, I think what happens is with Kareem, oftentimes people are enamored by Michael because Michael changed the game. And although Michael doesn't have the scoring record, Michael had the endorsements. Michael had the six championships and went undefeated in the, in the championships. And I think many times guards get more attention than centers. Mm -hmm. And I can even take that down the line with Shaq. Shaq was a center. I think Shaq was the first time many people took a center seriously, even with selling sneakers. I think that Kareem gets some of that same thing. And Kareem was also in movies, though. That's what makes him special. You know, in a day and age where somebody like LeBron is doing movies now, Kareem did that already. And it's not, not to take anything away from LeBron. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you for one second and, and, and just make a slight disagreement with you in the sense that, and I love Michael and respect mm -hmm. him, okay? But... I'm not sure that Michael changed the game as much as the game changed, which allowed Michael to be Michael. Hmm. So when, when Michael, you know, got his first ring in 91 and then the five that came after it, there, there wasn't anybody left. Okay. The Lakers were done because Kareem had retired and then Magic converted seropositive for HIV in, in 91. So. He was, they were, he was never challenged again by the great Laker teams, the ones that, because Kareem had already retired before 91. So he wasn't a part of that series against, I mean, I don't know what they would have done. They had Luke Longley, they had Bill Wennington. Right. Um, I mean, what were they going to do with Kareem? Okay. So, so he didn't play the Lakers. The Celtics got old very, very fast. Uh, Bird, Parrish, and McHale all got old at the same time. 
So the Celtics were done. You know, there was no challenge there. And the Pistons were done. And so basically, when you really look at the six rings that the the, uh, Bulls won, they didn't play anybody, or at least they didn't play any of the championship caliber teams of the 80s, like the Lakers, the Sixers, the Celtics, and the Pistons. Right. All 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 four of those teams had basically you know, had their run, and it was and it was over. And 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 so that's not taking anything away from him because he did what he was supposed to do. It, exactly. He dominated. He dominated. But but the game wasn't the same game. It was it was different. And no, that's fair. That's fair. And I'll add, I think the toughest competition that Michael and the Bulls faced was the Seattle Supersonics in 96 and the Utah Jazz. The Utah Jazz in 97-98 were a good team. They just couldn't get past Michael. Yeah. yeah. But he was a monster. I mean, he, and he did actually going up to that 91 series. Obviously, you know, I knew he was a great player and had great respect for him. But, a, but my respect really uh, went up. His stock went up with me in the '91 Finals when he he took over, and I mean he was literally he was literally unstoppable. I I I hadn't seen anybody um, do some of the things that, that that he he did. And and I tell you what, if you want to see a guy that could really play, um, you look at Dr. J when he was with the Nets when he was in the ABA. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he was he was unbelievable, and Michael was even better than that. So, you know, it's unfortunate because uh, these kids, I don't think they take the time to go back and, like you said, you watch a lot of the classics. You know, they don't. They're not interested. Uh, you know, it's you know, you know, they, and they think that they can beat all those players. You know, I don't think the skill levels there. You know the. There's none of the big men. Nobody plays with their back to the basket anymore. Uh-uh. No. And it's interesting because uh, when you were talking about just comparisons or rather just the Michael versus the, you know, where we are now, Kareem, I spoke to uh, Dr. J last year. And something that uh, Dr. J said was um, this whole comparison game is nothing new. So when he was there, uh, they were doing the whole Connie Hawkins thing. Um, comparisons and are have always been a thing. The only difference is um, he feels that that's a conversation for the fans, not for the players. You hear a lot of players making these comparisons now, but then you can make the argument: players are fans just as much as the, you know they get paid to be players, but they're also fans of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, to that point, uh, the issue of super team um, is something that I'm fascinated with. Um, Earlier this summer, uh, Charles Barkley uh, said that he'd rather retire uh, than join a super team. And uh, he said this on the uh, Unnecessary Roughness podcast with Fred Annette. And Fred posed the argument that the Houston Rockets were a super team. Uh, And so I I spoke to Clyde Drexler. Uh, He disagreed with that assessment by Charles Barkley and said uh, he would consider the Rockets a super team. He said, but super teams are nothing new. He said, you've got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. James Worthy, Magic Johnson. And then you have Ben McAdoo, Michael Thompson. you got Myron Scott, A.C. Green, Kurt Rambis, all these great players, Michael Cooper. Same time playing very high level. Uh, that's what super teams 
people are all about. Do you subscribe to the theory that the Lakers were a super team? Yeah, but it's a little bit different um, in the sense that are, are you talking about a super team that was put together through free agency? Or you talk about super teams that that drafted well and developed players, okay? um, you know, and then eventually became super. So, you know, and, and Kareem, you know, did go to the Lakers as a, as a free agent. So he was, but he was already there. They drafted Magic Johnson. Okay? Um, <clears throat> then they drafted James Worthy. Okay. They traded for Byron Scott. So it wasn't that Byron was a free agent and chose to go where he wanted to go. Mm -hmm. It was different. There was more strategy in putting the team together in the sense that the franchise, you know, either, either traded or developed along with free agency. This super team stuff is more like the players getting together and saying, hey, you know, let's let's play together. You know, I'm going to be a free agent. You're going to be a free agent next year. Come here, and then, you know, we'll get this guy. He's going to be a free agent next year. And, and so that's different. It's different. It's, it's the, the, the construction of the, super, of the super teams was different back then. Um, management created the super teams where it seems like now the players and the agents are creating the super team. Which goes right along the lines with what Byron Scott told me early September. Uh, he said that uh, the Lakers were a super team. He said we didn't call it a super team uh, back in those days because Jerry West was a master at drafting guys and making trades to make that dream such a super team. But no one looked at them and said, that's a super team. So mm -hmm. what you're saying goes along the lines of what, what Mr. Scott said uh, on Scoopy Radio. Yeah, well... Byron and I came up together. He uh, he came to the Lakers one year before I did. Um, I was I was in the league before him. Like I said, I was with the Jazz, and then I left the league and then came back. So, and Byron and I and James are still very very close. We uh, we see each other all the time, have dinner together, families, and, and everything. You talk about two solid guys uh, on and on and off the court, loyal, wonderful human beings. Scoopy Radio talking to Mr. Gary Reedy, sir. And one of the things that I, I think was just groundbreaking uh, when you were with the Lakers, obviously, uh, 32 years, uh, you've been to the NBA Finals 12 times. Um, Magic Johnson, uh, when he made the announcement, you decided in 92 to not wear gloves when you were treating him for a cut. You faced a lot of criticism for that. I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do, do you think it was because people were scared, or do you think it was because they didn't know what to, what what was actually happening? Usually, one goes with the other, right? So fear comes from ignorance. Um, you know, when you don't know something, then you know, you, you you fear it. And you know, it was a it was a different time. We didn't, you know, the world didn't know a lot about the disease. You know, I knew more than, than most, so I knew what I was doing. But, um, you know, it, it looked bad. And, and, and you, know, you, gotta, you have to understand that the reasoning behind what I did, um, you know, Carl Malone and, 
and um, Price, the kid in Cleveland, the point guard, and I don't know, a couple of other guys were saying that they didn't they didn't want to play with with Magic, mm-hmm. and you know they were very vocal and public about it. But what a lot of people didn't know was his teammates were coming to me privately and saying, hey, look, you know, Carl doesn't want to play with me. How often does he play with him? I got to practice with the guy every day. You know, you sure this is okay? And and I'm assuring, you know, everybody on the team that, that everything's okay. And so here we are, we're in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and he gets a fingernail scratch. It's a non-bloody wound. It's a control situation. And every all eyeballs and camera lenses are upon me. And I have those gloves in my back pocket. And I thought about putting them on. And I just, I, you know, I just looked at the faces on everybody on the team. And I said, I can't, I can't do that. I can't put gloves on. I mean, what kind of message is that sending to everybody, you know? And, and so uh, I refused to do it. And Magic saw the same faces that I saw. And he decided that, you know, he would retire again, um, you know, be, be, because he, he felt like, you know, they, they don't want to play with me, you know what I mean? So why should I force myself on them? And if, if, he, if he didn't retire, you know, probably nothing would have come of it. But because he retired, that's when the picture hit, hit the front page. And you see me without the gloves. And, and then uh, literally what happened was a, a doctor from Rhode Island, so we think he was an overzealous Celtic fan, mm-hmm. <laughs> made, a formal, yeah, made a formal complaint to OSHA. And, uh, you know, whenever, whenever you have a complaint, and when OSHA comes in, then they not only look at that, they, they, you open the door. They come into your business, they look at everything. Mm-hmm. So what that caused our owner was for them to come in and perform, and, you know, looking for signs on the wall, you know, make sure you bend your knees when you lift things, you know, for the people that work there and stuff, the changeover crews. And, and it caused, it caused a, a, you know, a lot of hype. And, and, and uh, you know, David Stern wasn't happy with me. Um, but I, I stuck to my guns on this and said I did what I did uh, for the reasons that I did it. And if I had to do it, I would do it again, you know, and if uh, that means that I, my career is over, then, you know, I, I go out standing on a principle. Um, eventually things blew over. Fast forward, uh, however many years, 20 plus years, uh, I retired. I got a beautiful letter from Adam Silver. It's one of my prized possessions, congratulating mm-hmm. me on my retirement, my career. And he, he literally mentions in the letter that I helped change the perception of HIV positive people, you know, in the world. And I, I don't know if that's true, but it was really nice of him to say that. And, um, and so it all worked out. You know, it's fine. And especially if the commissioner is lauding you for that, that that, that speaks volumes. Uh, commissioner Silver, very well respected, uh, particularly how he entered uh, the his, his role in early on and has carried that popularity over in, in today's game. 
Gary Vee on the line with Scoopy Radio talking all things Lakers. His career, uh, native of Connecticut, made his way to uh, Los Angeles. When you uh, went to L.A., you guys were rock stars. Uh, you guys, you were on the cover of Sports Illustrated with that team. When you when you were on your way out, you got a video montage uh, tribute on the Staples Center. Uh, Jumbotron, you were mm-hmm. first for that. Um, did you know that that was going to happen? Were you surprised? How did you feel when that happened? Um, you mean when I first came to the team and and saw how they treated our our players? It was um, no, I didn't know that was going to happen because my experience was with the Jazz. Nobody cared about them. Um, but yeah, well, we went on the road and we would pull up, you know, to a hotel at two or three in the morning, and there's a you know a hundred people waiting in front of the hotel to get a glimpse of magic, you know, or Kareem or whoever. Uh, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was sobering. Um, I tried never, I, I, I tried never to get too, uh, caught up in the hype, you mm. know, um, you know, Chick Hearn said a couple things, uh, to me that helped me out early in, in terms of remaining humble and, and, and stuff like that. One of the things he said to me, he goes, all those people you step on on the way up the ladder, the same people you run into on the way back down. And, and I, it always stuck with me, not that I stepped on anybody, but you know, when you start walking around thinking that you're special um, because you're with the team, you know, you can, you can you can anger a lot of people uh, that way, and and so although it was mesmerizing in in many ways, I tried not to get too caught up in in the hype, you know. Um, but it was interesting to watch those guys, and they were uh-huh. yeah, we had a great team, and they were great on and off the court, if you know what I mean. I mean they they played hard and they partied hard. I got to get you, going here pretty soon, Brandon. Not a problem. Before we go, um, your prediction for the Lakers this season and moving forward? Um, you know, I want to say this, that you, you know, they inherited, like when, when they fired Mitch Kupchak and, and Jimmy Buss, they were in pretty good shape. They had young kids, they had picks, and they had money. And and so what's going now on now is sort of the fruition of those seeds that were, were planted back then. So they may not be the same people, um, but even like when you when you draft a player in the NBA, basically what you're doing is you're drafting an asset for hopefully about 12 years. Now that guy's probably not going to play for you for 12 years anymore. Those are the old days. Okay. But when that person's career is over, you can trace back the places that he played and the deals that were made. And you can almost monetize it to see what that contribution was to your team. So although D'Angelo Russell's not there anymore and Julius Randle's not there anymore, you know, what did you get from that, okay, from those deals? And there was a couple of bad ones, okay? Um, but, you know, they're, they're, 
there's still a ways away. There's still, you know, a work in progress. Uh, you have to, I guess, figure what do you think LeBron's worth in, in terms of wins? I mean, is he, is, is he worth 10 more wins? He might be. Okay. Um, and they may need 10 wins to get the A spot. I really don't think that they'll be in the upper bracket. I don't think they'll be one of the top four. And then the question is, is five through eight, what's going to separate five through eight uh, or five through nine, okay, the team that doesn't make it? And it could be as close as one to two games um, from five on down. You know, it, it, it just depends on how the league you know, what the league does. Um, the Western Conference is tough. You know, they certainly have a better chance of being a playoff team with LeBron. Um, maybe the greatest thing uh, is is the, the culture um, that the Lakers created, you know, may be reborn. There may be a renaissance there. You know, because of LeBron's work ethic and his competitive nature, um, that will rub off on the young kids. And and so, you know, I think that answers your question. I you know, I I think they'll be a playoff team, um, and I think they have a very bright future. But they're, they're definitely not there yet. Um, you know, in this league today, you need a minimum of a three-headed monster. You know, Golden State has four. You know, if, if you consider Boogie uh, a monster, in my opinion, he was probably the best center in the league um, when he was in Sacramento before he got hurt. Um, so we'll see how he comes back from from his Achilles thing. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, he went to Golden State, didn't he? Uh, we want to Javale McGee. Mm-hmm. You know who? We'll see what you know. I don't know. You know, Golden State—they got four or five guys on that team that that, that could take over a game. Um, Houston is really—I mean, I think the best series is going to be Houston and Golden State. That's going to be better than the finals. Mm-hmm. It's it's looking uh it's looking promising I'll say that yeah it's yeah. looking promising Scoopy Radio right on the line with Mister Gary Vita you got to get up out of here brother I thank yeah. you so much for your time uh, an honor and um we hope to get catch that book sometime soon man yeah I'm working on it let me know when you uh, when you put the cat podcast out and I'll uh, I'll tune in and listen to us for sure my brother thank you so much thank you man you have a good one. Thank you, right. you too. Scoop B Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.